Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest today is Kyle Hollingsworth, who most people know as the good-natured and versatile keyboardist for the String Cheese Incident. He's also a successful solo artist, a studio wizard, a highly skilled brewer, a family man, and a snappy dresser. Welcome, Kyle. Yeah, thanks for having me. You were raised in Maryland. Yes. The suburbs of Baltimore or in more of an urban environment? In the suburbs, honestly. I would sneak down to the city to play music a lot. I played in the band called Black Friday back there, kind of a punk band, playing to small, gritty clubs full of smoke and really bad beer all over the floor. But yeah, when I would go home, I'd be in the suburbs. It'd be nice. <laughs> you come from a musical family? My dad played piano, and my mother sang, but no one professionally, which is something that spoke to me early on. Honestly, though, I think I was wanting to be on stage, and I saw some of the avenues. At first, I was an actor. I did even something for WBAL in Baltimore, and Oprah Winfrey was working there. She was the anchor. So I went in there and did like a little infomercial, and I met her. I was like, oh, my God, I met anchor woman. Little did I know. I was probably 10. I was like, I want to be on stage. I'm going to be an actor. And then by the time I get older, I was like, I'm tired of getting nervous about auditions. So I started studying music, which I'd already been doing by my parents. And then I said, let's be a rock star instead. So I studied and studied and studied. You were the youngest of seven. Seven. Correct. The baby. Baby. Of course, I listened to it with my sister. My sister saw the Beatles, actually, in concert in Baltimore. So she was a huge Beatles fan. Simon and Garfunkel, the comedy records of Smothers Brothers and Bill Cosby. And even you memorized every little skip on your record, even like your favorite Beatles record. It would skip in the same spot every time. And you would just keep singing that same skip over and over again, or the same joke. <laughs> <laughs> and then by the time I kind of got my own voice for music, it was more pop. I really loved the cars when I was growing up. And it kind of quickly moved from there to the talking heads, which had a little bit more depth going on. You reference two bands whose keyboard players were seminal. Greg Hawks, Greg, Greg Hawks in the yeah. Cars. What he did in that band was unprecedented yes, uh, at the amazing. time. The guy like Bernie Worrell, Talking Heads, he provided the funk for yeah. David Byrne and, and the, the crew. Square, the, David Byrne. The big suit. At the time was Brian Eno's contribution registering. He was a keyboardist, but it was more of that non-musician's musician ethos that he put out there with ambient sounds and textures. Yes, definitely. One of the first LPs I ever got was My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, which was Brian Eno and David Byrne using a lot of these long tape loops and creating music out of chance a lot of times. So I knew Brian Eno only through the Talking Heads. And then I would follow each one of the members. I'm like, oh, Jerry Harrison was in Casual Gods and Tina and Tom Tom Club. And then Brian Eno, here come the warm jets. And I went down that road with him. But I'm always rediscovering, especially with Brian Eno. You got a degree in jazz piano. Correct. Is teaching the usual path for that type of degree? I would imagine so. At that point, I was playing in this band I'd mentioned, Black Friday, and I was just wanting to be better at keyboards, striving to be more like Bill Payne from Little Feet. What does that sound? Or even at that point, I was the Grateful Dead, Brett Midland, 
and some of those things. And so I was like, I wanted to study jazz just so I have it under my fingers, but really kind of be in rock and roll. So I wasn't thinking I was going to be a teacher. I was thinking I was going to be a full-time musician. But yeah, a lot of my friends are amazing teachers and professors. What happens to bring you to Colorado? I'd been coming out here for a few years working on the Colorado Trail. When I was like 18, a friend of mine said, you can come out and be a volunteer. So I went out and I was just digging the Colorado Trail for one week here, another week there, and I did it for a couple summers. And then I said, this is a beautiful spot. Maybe I'll be a forest ranger. Never mind all this music stuff. I want to come out here and study forestry. And first thing, I come out and join some hippie jam band. It wasn't string cheese. It was like liquid sunshine or something like ridiculous. <laughs> Sorry, guys, wherever you are. So I was like, music was just drawing me more in than forestry was. So I just kind of followed that path. At what point did you hook up with Dave Watts of the Motet? Early on, Dave brought everyone to Colorado and gave them a place to stay. Fish would come into town and stay in his commune called Double Dig. It was out in North Boulder. It's since been plowed over. But that's where I met a lot of the guys from String Cheese, actually, because Travis was in a tent in the backyard and Fishman was in the laundry area doing laundry. And Dave, at that point, was wearing a dress and had really long hair. <laughs> it was definitely the last vestiges of that in Boulder. <laughs> a musical commune, I wouldn't say okay. it was a full-on 60s thing, but a joint space of creativity. Dave's like, come on over. So I came over to his house and I jammed with him and Ty North, who was a bass player from Leftover Sound. And this one guy named Michael Kang showed up one day. And so Michael Kang, Ty North, and Dave and I started gigging, just some gigs at Penny Lane, which used to be a coffee shop in Boulder. And then Kang's like, well, hey, you play in his other band, Dirt, you want to open up for us? I said, sure. And then after that, he said, do you want to sit in in our band? <laughs> and I've been sitting in ever since. String cheese, I guess. <laughs> international scene that it started in London in the late 80s and it got labeled acid jazz which was mm. kind of putting the funk into jazz covers or brand new heavies was the band that got most of the credit was that in the air here in Colorado absolutely that's pretty much where we we're playing up in Netherland we would do an acid jazz night and Dave would be on it and the different drummer or whoever and you would just play footprints but more funky or all blues would you play it in 4-4 it was definitely a thing what was the point? I guess to make jazz more danceable or something, I guess. I'd been versed, I'd have a degree, so I knew the songs, but then we just had to translate them into something more accessible for the put hippies. The, put the grease on it. Yeah. <laughs> Where did the band Dirt fit into the chronology? D-U-R-T. Yes. Probably the other significant band I was playing with at the time. Over the years, I probably played with 25 bands before I got to Colorado. When I got here, I was playing on and off with different people, but Dirt felt like a real foundation, like something was coming together and Travis is a great singer and we were all young players it felt like we were writing strong material and had a real chance to make it in the scene so for a while they were doing really well it was great it was the era of band called Steak Band Du Jour Leftover Salmon they were kind of the bigger ones Sponge Kingdom so I'd been in town for about three years I guess so that was the era and then from there is when I joined Strangers Time and time you leave me here waiting all Dirt's drummer was Gordon Beasley. 
Gordon went on to play with several bands, notably Brethren Fast, before he fulfilled his ambition to become a policeman. In 2002, Gordon was slain in the line of duty in the Arvada shooting in June of 2021. You yeah. got together with your old dirt yeah, bandmates to all reminisce and yeah. mourn. Gordon was an amazing human being, a great drummer, but also just very open and giving and wanting to help others whole story about him going to the school every day and biking with that person. That was his personality throughout the band. It was a challenge for us to get him angry. (laughs) It was a crushing blow. It was a beautiful ceremony, and the 1996 bands were all there. You met Michael Kang through Dave Watts, and he invited you to come and play with his band, String Cheese Incident. At that point, those guys were self-described ski bums. Not so much me, but yes. And had been playing the bar circuit in Crested Butte and Telluride. Even in those early days, it seemed to be an interactive scene, that people were just as much a part of the show as the band. People listened. They started following them around. And then String Cheese starts throwing festivals or incidents. Incidents. Uh, that were as much carnivals as concerts. Pretty wild that people would take that positive communal vibe and idealism and build it into this loyal and involved fan base. Mm, I love that. That's interesting. You forget that, but that's absolutely correct. We've been a band for 28 years. But our heart and soul was around the community that we were building at the time. And everything we did was like, what are the fans going to enjoy? Why do we want to sell our own tickets? Because we want to make sure the fans don't have to pay the extra blah, blah, blah. Why do we want to have a travel company? So they don't have to deal with all the blah, blah, blah. So we've made everything around the fans make their life easier and be part of the community. Sure. Cheese's guitarist, came from an acoustic music background. A lot of bluegrass, folk. There aren't many piano players in the bluegrass (laughs) genre, but you guys figured it out, incorporating jazz and electronica over the years. Was that larger pattern always in mind after your arrival, or were there clarifying moments? I don't think I've been asked that before, but that's a really good question because it wasn't in mind. We were willing to grow as a band at any point in time. And that meant bringing in the Kang's like, I want to do a Latin something, something. And that's something I really enjoyed. So just said, sure. And I'm sure Billy wasn't not his favorite type of music to play, but we were all open towards it. But slowly, as you work really hard, you're in a bus together from 98 to probably 2002, driving around in what we called Bussy, which is an old ski bus from Crested Butte. You're all living together. But once you kind of start separating and you have families and you do your own thing, different influences come in. So Kang all of a sudden's like, I'm really into the EDM music. And I didn't know much. I had no reference to that. But I really like this New Orleans thing. I want to go down and study some things there. And Travis was starting another project with a friend. And we had to take the concept of opening our hearts to everybody's music completely seriously and take it to another level. Because Billy had no concept of wanting to play dubstep. <laughs> And I didn't really have any special love of that, but it became a love of two of the members of the band. So we had to say, well, we'll do a song like that once in the set, sure. Just to not only bring that influence in, but also maybe the audience would be more turned on by something like that. But it's challenging, because I guarantee you there's 
people who loved us in 98 and said, man, whatever happened? They, they brought the, the keyboard player in. They brought the synthesizer. They were so much better without him. And then the people that joined later, like, and then what, why did they start playing dubstep or electronic music? Go back to your roots. And our roots are wide. They run deep, as Billy would say. And so it isn't just one style of music that comes to the table with us. While you're working on the music and the sound, String Cheese had no major label contract, hardly any commercial radio airplay, no video on MTV, none of the usual shortcuts, and yet you had an astounding business team. Your own management, yes, booking company, your own record label, SCI Fidelity, and a merchandising department, an in-house ticketing service, and travel agency to help the fans get to your incidents, to lots of exotic locations, Mexico, Costa Rica, Jamaica. Jamaica was the first one. My wife-to-be went there that time and saw us in 98, and there's probably 40 people on the beach. And now everybody's doing international incidents, but early on, we are one of the people bringing that to the table, for sure. How much were you involved in all the different wings of the organization? The majority of our success, at least in the beginning, was Michael Kang working with Mike Luba. As far as the business was concerned, they were serious go-getters, and they would sit down and look at the map, and I was just like, I can bring my creativity to... The music. And I was not probably super involved in deciding to go to Jamaica. We all talk about themes and what we want to do for a big festival together. But the direction we were moving was more so on Kang and Luba at that point, which I'm so thankful he was in the zone. As years went along and we got more of these things, we all had to take some part. I think I was more the merch person. Keith was more the ticketing person. But it's really up to the the separate companies to kind of run themselves. Your middle management. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Around the late 90s, it seemed that any band that was lumped in to the jam band category heard this rap from the old guard, that they're good players, but they don't write songs. The worst offenders were dismissed as noodlers. The musicianship in String Cheese Incident was undeniable. Did you hear that noise? There is definitely that noise, and to some degree, I think it's accurate at times. We're noodlers for sure. We go back even now. We all have homework this week to listen to our shows from Red Rocks. We're all going to make notes, and then we're going to call and go through what we think works and what doesn't work. So we're always constantly trying to manifest that, and when you listen to it, you're like, wow, I play way too many notes that don't need to be played. But the bigger concept is that there were some people that were just playing without any sense of musicality behind it. So I think String Cheese was able to guard itself against that noodle pocket because I felt like we were more schooled, and I feel like we're outside of the rank of that a little bit. Your albums in the early 2000s addressed that to a degree. Outside, inside, working with Steve Berlin of Los oh, Lobos yeah. as a producer. different genres on Untying the Knot. One Step Closer Mm -hmm. had shorter songs, and you worked with Malcolm Byrne. You wrote a song with Robert Hunter, the lyricist of The Grateful Dead. 45th of November. 45th of November 
translating the impact of the improvisation of live performances and getting that to the science of recording, of using the studio as an instrument. I think the biggest time we did that was actually Untying the Knot. That was with Youth. He was from a band called Killing Joke. He would yell at us if our drummer played more than an eighth note. And the drummer went, that's jazz! In a very thick accent. Don't play that! That's jazz! No! So every song, we were all like, okay, that's not really what we do. So all the songs had to be stripped down. And then to speak to the using the studio, he brought in like Mountain Girl and friends of ours from Mary Pranksters in that era came and he did the Pink Floyd thing where he interviewed them and gave them a bunch of odd, bizarre questions. And then he sampled them into the music. That became Brian Eno-esque to come back to that, to use the found music to make an album and that was really intriguing to us it was really difficult for us but it was one of my favorite albums sonically I like some of the other albums for songwriting but I think that was the best thing in the studio very far away be noted, String Cheese Incident documented its live concerts. You released nearly every show through that On the Road series. You can uh, purchase any show. Yep. Uh, for better or worse. String Cheese Incident took a break in 2007. Sounds about right. You launched a solo project. The Kyle Hollingsworth Band and other configurations have endured at that juncture, which was first, the band's hiatus or your desire to do something on your own. Get back to Dave Watts. Dave and I have been working together, and I did an album with Dave my first solo CD, Never Odd or Even, prior to 2007. So I'd been kind of taking moments in time when String Cheese was off tour to go out with Dave and Midman Garrett at that point. I mean, even Dominic played in the band who plays with uh, Big Gigantic. So I was ready to explore that space, but I was not ready to be done with String Cheese. We took a hiatus. One of the members was ready for a break. And so he decided that he could no longer be in the band. So we decided we were not going without him. So we kind of phrased it as no shows foreseen in the near future. We kind of made it pretty vague. If we wanted to jump back in, we could. So then at that point in time, I was like, I got something I got to do. So I kept recording my own music. It's hard to encapsulate the sheer number of people you toured with or recorded with. You've come into the orbit of nearly every working Colorado musician. Absolutely. And if we want to name drop the heavy hitters, we can go from Speech, the man from Arrested Development. Arrested Development. You worked with him in Three Foot Icon, Joshua Redman, Robert Randolph on your first solo album. Oh, yeah, right. right. I forgot about that. Um, George Porter Jr. of The Meters, DJ yeah. Logic, the surviving members of The Grateful Dead. Yeah. You yeah. brushed up against Lesh and Weir and Kreutzman and Hart. Yep. 
the best keyboard players on the planet, the aforementioned Bill Payne yeah. from Little Feet. Oh, he's uh, actually a friend. Yeah. Because I just talked yeah. to him the other day. And Bruce Hornsby, a jazz legend like Mike Clark, Herbie Hancock's drummer from the 70s. Everybody has their 9-11 story. Where was I in 9-11? I was on tour with Mike Clark, and we were in Austin, Texas. All the original members from the Headhunters and just got in on the bus in 9-11. We heard the whole thing, and Mike and all those guys are from New York. So we said, should we play a show? And I don't know, no one's playing. And then we said, funk them. Not the other word, but funk them. Let's go and just play music for the people. And it was the only sold-out show on the tour. And people were just ready to dance and rage and get away from their screens and not watch anything. And we had a fantastic show. I list all these people just a fraction, as I say. Is it networking or just being open to anything that comes your way or an insane work ethic? Oprah says or something. Luck is a combination of preparedness and opportunity. And I really take that to heart. I'd been practicing even during the dirt days, even early string cheese when we weren't working. And I'd put a backpack on and try to look like a college student. And I'd break into the music buildings of every different university across the United States. I had all their codes on my phone so I could sneak into there and practice during the day. So I was ready for the opportunity and then it just happened. It was luck, but I was there. Hands anytime he sits in, makes everything better. One of my favorites, though, was Cool and the Gang. Zach Brown was epic. When they come to the table with something to offer, the opposite of that is when we played with Lauren Hill. That was a challenging time. Lauren Hill's like, but I don't care. <laughs> I'm just going to show up because I'm getting paid to show up. Versus, like, people were like, let's do this. Let's make it a new incident. Then it becomes more interesting for me to listen to. You've played everything from folk to classical, but I always dug your stab at progressive rock, prog rock. Prog. Right, mm -hmm. with Tufnell's Retreat. Yes. Right, it's Mozart and Bach put together, is that what he says? Or yeah. It's more of a mock piece, really. <laughs> <laughs> I'd been writing it actually with String Cheese originally, and String Cheese just got so bogged down with some other things we were working on that I said, I need to record this piece. If, I wrote a piece called Boo Boo's Picnic, which is kind of a bluegrass piano piece. And I said, I think I could translate something like that into more of a classical organ-based thing. So I was thinking of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. So I wrote the melody for it, and then I got together with Travis, and Travis said, well, it's not going to be a big enough piece unless there's a romping 6-8 that's very string cheese, like round the wheel or something. So I put the, the head up top and then the romping 6-8, and then my band, I got together with KHB, and I said, we need to have the Bach the mock moment. <laughs> so I said, everybody, just pretend you're playing some kind of etude. And so the bass player went, -do 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 -do, and I started playing, -do 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 -do, and we put it all together. And actually, our first take was actually one of the best takes, because we were kind of playing with it and kind of laughing when we were doing it. The reference was more tongue-in-cheek that it was too grandiose to exist, and we were making fun of ourselves to call it Tufnell's Retreat all these different movements that I think are supposed to be so special. Live has been a lot of fun. It's a challenging piece to play, especially it's like a 130 BPM and the head is all 16th notes. And just to be able to relax enough to play, see. And it's all different notes. It isn't just scales. When I recorded it, I couldn't play it. I was like, what is wrong? And I realized I was playing it too fast. 
that the opposite was happening. I was trying so hard to play it, to be in time, that I was rushing it. And I was like, oh, I don't have to work this hard to make this piece work. So I know this relaxed. So whenever I play it live, I'll just keep telling myself, relax. What would Nigel say? <laughs> <laughs> and I always talk about it on stage. I'm going to be starting <laughs> Anyone who's seen you in concert knows that fashion is your passion. Do you yeah. buy off the rack or do you have things made for you? <laughs> well, it all began with early string cheese. I was always a rebel, like in the Joy Division, more edgier stuff. And I was in a band, even Travis was wearing skirts early in the day and long hair. And I couldn't join the band unless I knew it a hula hoop for real, like try out in front of the band to hula hoop. And I didn't ski. I thought ski was too expensive and elitist sport. And they're like, no, it's the only way to live. And so I needed to separate myself from what was happening. So I started buying really ugly, gross, weird, bizarre shirts and things. Nothing with anything would match. And again, I got a weird little hat. And I became the guy who kind of stuck out to be different because I wanted to be different. I wanted the kind of a uniqueness. Because you're on the road with these guys for five, six years. You need to kind of figure out who you are. So then it just kept growing. And then, yes, at this point in time, some people do make me some shirts. But I have no desire to – like, I wear all these cat shirts, but I actually hate cats. And it became known that I was the cat guy. I don't know how that happened. But in the same way, like, he wears funny clothes. I don't wear any funny clothes anywhere else. I just have show clothes. You're an avid brewer of beer, and I am speculating that you enjoy the chemistry of hmm. brewing as much as the consumption. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you've teamed up with breweries across the nation – you did a brewski tour of Alaska. Yeah, we I was in a boat, yeah. We yeah. toured around. Did you aspire to bring something new or better to the world of craft beer, or was it just a hobby gone haywire? I started homebrewing when I was 16 because my brother was doing it. Everything my brother does and did at the time was cool. He smoked pot, so I smoked pot. He was into the Grateful Dead. I was into the Grateful Dead, and he brewed beer. I was like, this is cool. But then once I started doing it, it became fascinating, the process. You put all these ingredients together, and you create something new it's almost like music you get your different elements together but it's all the pieces come together to make something completely different so early on i did bring something i thought would help change the culture i made a beer called hoopla which was early boulder beer product with me and i was tired of going down south and playing bonnaroo and all these places and everybody had these really awful lager beers in their hands i was like can we just bring something that's lighter We'll call it a festival pale ale, something lighter, that is hoppy, that has some sort of nose to it, but also has some character. And we can bring it to these people, and they'll be like, psyched! And I can kind of subtly educate them on good beer. Session beers weren't a thing yet, so we made it really low. It was like 4.8, and we put good hop nose on it. I went to Bonnaroo and did a beer and rise or something. I had a wagon full of hoopla. And we'd walk into everybody's tents, and they'd be like, what? And I was like, here's a beer. And then we'd take a picture, and I'd walk all through the campgrounds. <laughs> Some people were like, aren't you in string cheese? Yeah. Most people were like, who are you? Why are you bringing <laughs> beer to my tent? And I'd say, I play in string cheese. And I'm like, who's string cheese? Because there's so many bands there. But they're like, cool, thanks for the free beer. It was a fun moment. And I think I turned some people on to some better tasting beer, but who knows. New Year's Eve, roughly four years ago, you broke your wrist. Oh, yeah. You toughed it out and played the New Year's shows with the break. It's such a clean break that the doctor didn't want to do much to it. He said, we don't have to do any pins or anything. 
just don't move it. So I put it on a rolling, I think it was like a mic stand or something. And I played the whole show one-handed. And it wasn't really that painful for some reason. So I just took three Advil every six hours and I was able to get through it. You learn, you overplay when you don't have a hand. I listened back to some of their shows like, wow, this is much cooler. Maybe I should just duct tape my hand <laughs> behind my back and I'll be a better player. It's apparent to anyone who follows you on social media what a proud dad you are. Mm. Your greatest work is your daughters. They've got to be old enough to get it, if you will. First now. years, yeah, get it, yep. I've always wanted to be a dad, so I love that. And I'm kind of a kid, annoyingly, to my wife. So she basically has three children. <laughs> and I run around and do as much as I can to be playful with the children. But my job is to be on the road. So it's always challenging to leave. But over the last year in the pandemic, as much as I love my children and want to be there, I went on tour for the first time with string cheese and we went to California and played the Greek. I just relaxed into this new sense of remembering who I was supposed to be. I love being home, but also I need to be doing music and I need to be in front of people and I need to be on tour to some degree. It's part of my personality. I'll sit at home and play a keyboard part and then I'll try 10 more keyboard parts and then I'll record something and then I'll put a bunch of stuff on it and then I'll go for a bike ride. I just need to be playing music with other people for me to be sane. But yes, I have a beautiful family and that's the most amazing thing in my life. Can't wait another day is for my youngest daughter, Isabel. Anticipation and nervousness around having another child, and it doesn't really work the way you want it to work. Like, my life needs to have structure, but kids don't really do that when they're in the womb. They're ready when they're ready. So the bags are packed by the door for two weeks. It came together really well, and it was very string cheese-esque, so it was easy to put together. How did string cheese navigate the first COVID-related lockdown? Ironically, we had just finished our 25th year of being a band in 2019. So we all decided collectively that we we're going to take a break November 1st through it's June 1st of 2020. It's a great time to take a break. Nothing's going to happen. And then, like, everything started happening. And our six-month break that we deserved, because we've been working so hard, which we saved up for, which was good, turned into 18 months. So we had actually timed it either correctly or incorrectly based on how you look at it. We were already on break. than other people, maybe. Some people were just like, this is great, I'm just gonna be home all the time and take care of my kids. Uh, at some point, the reality of money does come in to play, and we were ready to start kicking it again in the spring. But we were all together in the sense that we need to be aware of crowd safety and that sort of thing. What's your favorite musician's joke, Kyle? Oh, how do you get a drummer off the porch? How, Kyle? You pay for the pizza. <laughs> 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 the color
Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization, relying on financial support from music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C-O-L-O music.org. Terrapin Care Station is a Boulder-based, vertically integrated, consumer-focused cultivator, processor, and provider of high-quality medical and recreational cannabis products. Terrapin loves music and is proud to partner with Colorado Music Experience to educate the public on everything great about our state's music history. It adds significant cultural value across Colorado, solidifying our state's position as a leader. Follow Terrapin on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit terrapincarestation.com.